0: Welcome to New Books in Journalism. I'm Dave Schwartz with the University of Iowa School of Journalism and Mass Communication. And in this episode, we are talking with Eric Simons, the author of a book that I have just been dying to get my hands on and have been so ready to uh, talk to the author about. The book is The Secret Lives of Sports Fans, The Science of Sports Obsession. Um, It is a great read, and we hope that you enjoy the interview. Eric, thanks for joining us.
1: Yeah, it's my pleasure. I'm excited to be here.
0: So before we get into the book uh, too much, and it's it's a, it's a fun book, t- tell us a bit about yourself, uh, your background, and, and some of your past work.
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm actually a, a science writer, not, not very much a, a sports writer at all. Um, you know, I come into this as, as a journalist, and uh, in the past, I've written a lot about you know kind of nature and, and the environment. And I actually wrote a book about uh, Charles Darwin in South America and, and traveled around in South America. Uh, and so sports is something uh, very for, new for me to be writing about, although science uh, not so much. But um, I kind of had I mean part of the the reason I. I Came into this book is because I had almost these two parts of myself, where I had uh, the the quiet little nature and science writer who, you know, kind of liked to sit and read quietly and, and valued reason and calm, and, uh, and and then I had the raging uh, sports fan inside of me that I have grown up with and uh, been a sports fan all my life of uh, my kind of Northern California teams, and, and and this thing was you know clawing its way out to demand. And like blood and vengeance and and revenge and um, somewhere in there, uh, at some point, I realized that the two of these were were oddly incompatible. But maybe I could maybe I could make them compatible. Maybe I could force some reconciliation between my my sports fan nature and my nature writing nature. And so out of that, <laughs> I became a, a pop psychology writer. <laughs>
0: It reminded me a bit of, of Malcolm Gladwell, in a way, about how he you know he embraces he's, he's very much a science and culture, and every now and then, you know, out comes the sports fan. Yeah,
1: and- yeah. Well, I think, I mean, you, when you start looking at sports, actually, there's uh, it, it's this just terrific window into, actually, a lot of human behavior. And uh, in some ways, it's kind of a safe space to look at a lot of the ways that we behave without, um, you know, the emotional tension of trying to look at politics. Or, or, or conflict or war or any of that stuff. I mean, sports is just kind of sports. and um, I actually take it almost more seriously after writing this book in some ways, but, but it's still a kind of place where you can go and see uh, humans on display doing all the silly things that, that humans do. Um, and it's fun to learn about. I mean, it's a neat place to explore.
0: Sure. I mean, you know, the social and the emotional stakes are so high, but the pragmatic stakes are so low.
1: Yeah, yeah
0: yeah exactly. <laughs> um so take us if you don't mind, take us where this book came from, and there's an incident you described at the beginning um, yeah. of, of cal football you, you, one of your loves uh, against Oregon State. Tell us you know sort of the impetus for this book and where it came from.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think this is really the the inciting incident. And this is one of those things. I've been going to Cal football games since I was four months old. I mean, this is a tradition as deeply as any tradition that I know. Uh, you know, my dad went to Cal and so he hauled me out. He's been a season ticket holder my entire life. He hauled me out when I was four months old. Uh, you know, I've just always been there. I've grown up. The stadium's about as familiar as anything. We have our specific game ritual and uh, you know, they were really bad for most of my uh young adult life um uh, into kind of my, my late twenties. And then suddenly uh they got a new coach in the early two thousands. And I remember like really distinctly, uh I was traveling at the time uh and and randomly clicked on ESPN one day and they had like Cal ranked in the preseason top twenty five and it was just like wow, whoa what and, and so you know i just grew up with this team and and they were you know there's so much this part of my my person and then uh they became good and it was this crazy like they've never been good um and and just people like embrace this and the stadium started filling up and it just became so exciting and and the peak of this uh is in in 2007 uh they start out I think they're like six and zero at the time, uh, and they were a really good team. I mean, there's great players on this team. Um, you know, a lot of guys in the NFL now. Uh, Deshaun Jackson, I think, is on this team, uh, and and they're ranked number two in the country. And it's a home game against Oregon State, who's unranked, and you know, it's just one of those like this is manifest destiny sort of things. Uh, and then Louisiana Tech, who's ranked, or, or Louisiana State, excuse me, who's ranked number one. Uh, Loses earlier in the day, and we're all in the stadium. It's kind of an evening game, and Cal goes down early. Uh, And then mounts this comeback and they have – the quarterback gets hurt and the freshman quarterback that everybody's kind of wondering about comes in and he plays great and it's so awesome. And there's just this inspired comeback and you can feel it in the stadium. Like everybody is just like crackling with energy and they're all the way coming back and they get the ball down three at their own 10-yard line and the freshman quarterback just throw after throw. It's beautiful and they drive all the way down the field to the 10-yard line and you like – you we're going to do it. You just, you know, your brains are all sitting there like, Oh my God, what are we going to do? We're going to win this game. We're going to come all the way back and we're going to win this game. And we're going to be the number one team in the country. And, but nobody even knows what that's like. Like we haven't won. We haven't gone to the Rose bowl since the 1950s. We haven't won the Rose bowl since the 1930s. Like nobody has any idea what we're going to do, except that the, like the lid is going to blow off of this building. And they have first and 10 with like eight seconds left and no timeouts. And they call a play, you know, it's one of those like, oh, he'll just, you know, if there's no play open, he'll just throw it away, we'll kick a field goal, we'll tie it, but we'll go overtime, you know, we'll win this overtime, we're at home, we're ranked, we're a better team, we have about the comeback. And so the quarterback drops back to pass and he looks around and there's no one open and we can all kind of see that no one's open. And, and actually the the place we sit in the stadium, about 50 rows up, but right over this end zone. So we're we're looking down at this and you can see, OK, no one's open So throw it away, Kevin, throw it away. And then you can start to feel this like Freudian like or this this young, like collective unconscious, like everybody in the stadium. It's like bubbling up from from the foundation, like throw it away, Kevin, throw it away, Kevin. And he doesn't throw it away, and he starts running, and you can see like instantly, like everybody's like hands are going to their head. Oh no, 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 no! And, and he starts to run, and he's past the line of scrimmage, and you can just see the the Oregon State defenders, and there's like this moment of horror that I will never ever forget. Because then all of a sudden my hands are on my head, and I'm looking and I'm like what's going on? No! And he gets tackled at the three yard line, and, and you can remember like him thrashing forward and not making it, and that the clock runs out, and they lose by three. And the coach winds up and just slams his headset into the ground. Usually a pretty calm guy, and I remember we're all just standing there in the stands, like hands on our heads, like like my mouth is agape. Uh, you know, I, yeah, I don't like that descriptor because it's so often not true. You know, it's an exaggeration, but like really, I mean, my jaw has dropped, and everybody around me. There's seventy thousand people, and we're all standing there, just open mouth, like stunned, utterly stunned, and then. You know we, we file out eventually and and I had taken the train over from San Francisco where I live and so I remember riding the train back and the game ended I think around uh, you know eight or nine p.m or something which is perfect time everybody's going into the city on the train and they're all dressed up and you know they're going to nice dinners and like I I love going out to dinner in San Francisco. It's a great food town. And you know, there's these exciting new restaurants and there's theater and like, you I'm just th- thinking I'm riding this train and, and here's all these people who are so excited and, uh, about all these, you know, nice things they're going to do in their lives with the, the theater and the, the movies and the big lights and the, the great food and, you know, classy cocktails. And I'm like crammed in the corner of the train and I smell bad because I've been sweating <laughs> for the last six hours. And for dinner, I had like, you know, some horrible stadium hot dog. <laughs> and and I just had this like, well, what is wrong with me? I have this headache that I get when I wear my cow hat for too long. <laughs> like I need to get a bigger hat, but this is the, this is my hat. This is what I wear. And it's a little too small now because it's shrunk over, from sweat over so many cow games. <laughs> so it's like squeezing my head and just somewhere in there is, is the, the revelation that says, what are you doing? What is wrong with you? Um, and <laughs> I wish that this was the only time I'd ever been miserable like this. But, but I think if you're a sports fan, you, you ask yourself sometimes just in these moments, what is wrong with me? Why am I doing this? And then, and then it occurred to me like, wait a minute. I write about science. I see all these books about you know, neuroscience and the new brain science of this and the new brain science of that. Surely I can look into this and, and maybe figure this out. Uh, so so I kind of saved up uh, the the memory and and a few other painful horrible memories of uh, uh, of terrible moments in my sports fan life and and then kind of started to sit down and think about it um, and and started to call people and ask them about it and um, and and what I came up with is is kind of this book
0: it's fascinating, too, how, how it's set up into the three parts, and the reflex and control and yeah. consequence. And I'm wondering, why why that way? How did you decide to structure the book the way you
1: did? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's something, obviously, I, I thought a lot about it. and took me a long time to get there. And I think this is because you know i kind of hoped originally uh, you know that this would be like a magazine article or something i'd call up a researcher at harvard and and he would say well uh, here's your answer right here you know it's this particular part of the brain and it'd be like great and i'd write a thousand words and i'd be done with it and and instead what i found when i started looking at this is not only that sports fans are are really complicated but that if you want to explain them uh, you have to do a lot of a lot of Work in a lot of different scientific fields, uh, and you know, as a sports fan, I guess you know this. You know, your your hormones are going crazy, and your brain is going crazy, your memory and your emotions, and uh, but also you're thinking a lot. There's, you know, if you're a baseball fan, there's all the math and statistics involved, and you know, football fans are calculating all these, you know, physics and, and speed and uh, open spaces, and you know, there's just there's a lot of stuff happening in your brain. Uh, And so I kind of started talking to people. And then I realized, well, there's kind of a separate thing. There's stuff that happens to you uh, when you're watching sports. And just you can't do anything about it. This is just if you are a human being watching other human beings compete, watching other human beings in action. There are just things that happen to your brain, things that happen to your body. But one of the, the defining things about sports fans is that we have these reflexes, but then we we filter them so much through through our emotions, through our experiences, through our memory and that's what creates so much of the kind of complexity of of sports fans is not just that we have these reflexes, but that we so often and so cleverly find ways to ignore them <laughs> and then and then what happens of course, is that you take all this stuff and because we 're so good at uh, manipulating what should be straightforward reflex, um, we have a lot of societal kind of consequence. Um, it changes the way we behave as individuals and as groups and, and not always in, in good ways. Although I, uh, as a lifelong sports fan tend to think that, you know, on the whole sports is not the worst thing you could be doing. Um, but, but certainly you can look at a lot of examples of sports fans behaving pretty badly, um, so I kind of built the book in this, well, here's just the most basic explanation I can give for what happens to you. And then here's how we actually take what happens to us. And we, you know, often on an unconscious level still, we we control it or we manipulate it. And then here's kind of what that means for, for the way we behave when you put us in a big group uh, with a lot of other people who aren't necessarily sports fans.
0: There's You know, as sports fans, we're watching people who don't know us, do things of of little (laughs) overall consequence. We get so worked up and use this term of of the physical experience of fandom. How how does being a fan have a take? How does it take a physical toll on us?
1: Yeah, this is really interesting, actually, because, again, like you say, we don't know these people. We're not participating. Uh, But it turns out, uh, and you know the reason for this we could go into later is, is complicated, but it turns out that uh, people watching other people compete have a lot of hormonal reactions as if they were competing themselves. Uh, and they've kind of built this case over the last twenty years or so. Um, they've known for longer than that that, if you are in a direct competition with someone, if you're fighting them, you're boxing them, even if you're you know, playing chess against them, playing tennis against them, uh, you know, sort of less belligerent sports, um, you have a pretty predictable uh, testosterone response, in particular, um, but but all your kind of hormones that you have that control a little bit the way you feel, uh, the way you act. Uh, you know, you have a stress hormone that that makes you feel stressed out, and you have a you actually have a love hormone, sort of oxytocin, that that makes you feel a little bit more uh, trusting, a little bit more loving, a little bit more cooperative. That that's active when you're when you're watching sports. Uh, you have adrenaline, of course, uh, but but the big one, I think, in sports fans is testosterone. And uh, we know we have known for a long time that. In in people directly competing, testosterone uh, changes. It goes up when you're challenged, when you think you're going to be in a fight. Um, It seems to go up again when you win a fight. Uh, They argue that there's an evolutionary explanation for this, which is that uh, if you have won a fight, you know whether you're a bird or a monkey or a human, um, there's some evolutionary benefit to, to consolidating your victory and, and going on and, and beating up other people <laughs> right after you've won. <laughs> and, and if you've lost uh, a fight, it, it's better to go off and heal and, and recover than it is to just keep stupidly fighting. Um, so you basically see in winners, you see their testosterone continue to go up. And in losers, you see their testosterone go down. Um, and and it all makes sense that this changes because it it also makes sense. You wouldn't want to just go around the world uh, being belligerent and picking fights all the time. You want it to be able to respond to the situation you're in. So, so what you see in, in people who are playing a sport is this change. And then they had this question, well, is this really what happens in, in just people watching? Uh, And, and yeah, it is Uh, uh, from, uh, you know, a very small study uh, of the, the 1994 world cup, Uh, where they found that the the victorious Brazilian fans watching on television from Atlanta, finals in Pasadena, which is 3,000 miles away, uh, the victorious fans had a testosterone increase, the the losing Italian fans had a testosterone decrease. Um, They've kind of expanded that since. Uh, The big one in this actually is a researcher at Duke who thought about this and thought, well – Uh, It doesn't have to be sports for it to be a a vicarious dominance competition, as they call it. This is basically what an election is in our winner-take-all political cycle. So uh, in the 2008 presidential election, he looked at the hormones of of voters, uh, looked at people who had voted for – uh, Barack Obama and who'd voted for John McCain and and the Libertarian candidate uh, Bob Barr and basically found the same thing that the testosterone of Obama voters went up after the decision was announced and the testosterone of McCain and Barr voters went down after the uh, after the decision after the winner had been declared uh, and and kept going down for about uh, forty minutes afterwards which is the, the period over which he measured uh, and so so there's this this response your testosterone is changing. Uh, just based on whether they, they win or lose when you're watching. Um, but there's a couple of complicating things there, uh, which I haven't mentioned yet. One is uh, only if you're a man, it appears, uh, or, or, or most likely only if you're a man. Uh, you know, In this election study, women showed nothing at all. Um, in a lot of studies, women don't show quite the reaction, um, and they're not quite sure why, uh, which is very interesting. Um, women in direct competition sometimes show this and sometimes don't. Uh, And so one theory is just that, well, it's a lower baseline in women. It's a little harder to to measure a testosterone response in them uh, or a big change in them. Another theory is, uh, well, in men, the testosterone is made in the testes, uh, which have the ability to kind of pump out a lot really quickly. Uh, Women, testosterone is made in the ovaries and in the adrenal glands. Um, it doesn't happen as quickly. So they may have a testosterone response to something like this, but you don't measure it quite as fast. You don't see it 20 minutes after an election like you do in men. Um, but but either way, uh, you know, there's kind of this interesting uh, gender imbalance in, in how your hormones respond. The other interesting thing here is that none of this actually happens at all if you don't care. If you're just a neutral person watching this election, your testosterone doesn't change because you don't care. Um, and so it's this reminder that, well, you have this this unconscious reflex, and you know all the you know the, the legend of testosterone. It makes you aggressive and, and belligerent and, and all this stuff, but you know so it's like it, it robs you of your free will while you're watching sports you're, you're, you're just sitting there minding your own business on the couch, and your team wins a game, and your testosterone goes up. It's like that's not fair, but, but it's also uh, only because you care. Um, and, and so this is kind of where you, know, you get into this idea of reflex and then how we control our reflex because it turns out that with testosterone especially, uh, there's a lot of stuff that goes into how big the response is, um, how much you care, how much you think you participated in the outcome, even in, even in people like on a soccer team who are competing directly. If you scored the winning goal, you have a higher testosterone increase when you win than than somebody who feels like I just sat the bench. Uh, and and so in fans, this is true a little bit as well. The more invested you are, the bigger your response. The more emotional the game is, the bigger the response. And it turns out there's a lot of ways we have developed to kind of uh, control this this testosterone reflex, which is pretty interesting.
0: It almost sounds as if testosterone is some sort of a as a, a physiological currency.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's accurate. I mean, you have little bits of it, and you, you can um, you can use them. Uh, you can expend them to kind of gain a temporary boost, and uh, it really raises your your awareness, your situational awareness, and, and your power, and promotes muscle growth and this sort of stuff. And um, you can kind of spend it uh, at that time to to become more aggressive and go on and win something. Unfortunately, as a sports fan. Uh, you you can't make your team win anymore once they've already won. But uh, you know you can you can right you can use it and, and if you lose it a little bit it's better to to not just keep gambling away your testosterone. It's better to go back and recoup your <laughs> recoup your losses some other time.
0: It's interesting. I as I was you know reading through the, the, the part one I was know, th- I grew up in St Louis and so I'm a St Louis Cardinals fan and you know they won the World Series in '82 and then not again until 2000. Six, and I remember you know being so geared up during that World Series, and they and they won. The final out is made, and they and they win. And Adam Wainwright you know strikes the guy out to, to end the game. And instead of getting higher, I almost felt almost like like some like numb, but it, but yeah. it, was, it was like like I had plateaued on some level. <laughs> like that's it. I I've achieved this.
1: Yeah, <laughs> as if well, I was
0: somehow on the field with them.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and I think. I mean, there's a couple of ways of, of thinking about that as well. Um, I mean, one of them, the other big reflex that I haven't really talked about is kind of what's happening in your brain, which is the way you see the world, uh, which allows you a very deep empathy with uh, with the players, with other people in action. And, uh, you know, I can describe this, this mirror neuron uh, system that they call it in your head, which is uh, – what basically what they think is there's these neurons. You, you know, when you do an action, you you have a, a set of neurons that that tells your muscles, okay, here's what we're gonna do. You're basically planning neurons, and the the neurons that then say specifically, okay, you know, arm muscle, do this. Um, and and what they noticed about 15 or 20 years ago is that well, it seems like these planning neurons turn on uh, whether you're doing the action or just watching someone do the action. Uh, in fact, it seems like they do it whether you're just hearing about it. Um, so if you say uh, hit the baseball, um, you know all the, the neurons that would plan and execute the action of you hitting a baseball light up. And the more you do something, it seems, the more active those are. They actually test um, – they have this great test of basketball players uh, and they're looking at elite – basketball players and just people who watch a lot of basketball coaches and sports journalists and then people who don't ever play and they measure not only their brain activity, but, but the muscle like twitches in their hands and forearms. And they find, uh, the elite players basically have more activity in, uh, in their hands when, uh, just these little tremors, uh, they call them corticospinal activations. Uh, you know, they're, they're getting ready when they see somebody shooting a basketball, they're getting ready to go do a rebound in a way that people who don't watch basketball aren't. Uh, and, and so the argument is you have this really, really deep empathy with other people uh, and especially people who are doing an action that you've watched a lot or that you've played a lot. Uh, and, and especially people who you apply a lot of filters to, this, especially people who are, in something that you perceive as a friendly group, uh, people that you identify with. uh, You know, there's all these kind of ways that you can deepen this empathy response so that you really are running this, like, full-scale simulation as if it's you out there. Um, And so when they win the World Series, like, number one, yeah, you do feel like you're on the field because your brain is kind of uh, running around like you are. Um, And then there's a lot of emotional stuff you apply on top of that uh, that'll really make this feel even more real to you. So it's a pretty, I mean, it's a pretty great and complicated uh, description of euphoria, I guess.
0: (laughs) I guess the other side of that euphoria would be, and I hate to pick on the poor city, but you've got a great chapter on Cleveland. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and sort of this identity that goes with, with people who, Identify with teams from Cleveland, and of course, yeah. they haven't won a title. I don't know in fifty plus years or however long it's been in any yeah, sport.
1: It's been a while, yeah, <laughs> and they they know exactly when it was, uh, which is one thing I, I love about Cleveland. Um, I, I think Cleveland has two big points, though. One, one of which is that you ask. I mean, they're kind of the perfect study for, well, if you know that you're getting jerked around by your testosterone and you know that you're behaving badly because of sports, that sports has a lot of negatives. Um, and, and then you see a team that never, ever wins, that for 50 years has found creative and, and terrible ways to lose. Why do you keep coming back? Uh, and this was kind of the question that, uh, that I went to Cleveland trying to get people to answer. It's like, why are you still here? Uh, because... Well, you know what? What's the, the meaning of this? And the answer uh, there's there's two of them, and I, I like both of these a lot. One of them is that this is a really important source of identity for people. That uh, you know, this is a world that can be quite complicated. You can fall in and out of love. Uh, you can lose your job. Uh, you can move. You can you can lose your house. You can you can leave a city. Uh, but but it's very hard. Of course, in Cleveland, this is not true. But but it's very hard for somebody to take a sports team away from you. And so, uh, it's very important to us to be able to say who we are quickly. To be, you know, I'm a, I'm a journalist. I'm a, a husband. I'm a father. But uh, you know, one of the safest ways you can say is, I'm a Cleveland fan. And. So so in some ways, uh, the sports teams are really protecting this this identity of Cleveland and, and of Clevelanders and and giving them this kind of foundation to work off in the rest of their lives. No matter what else happens to you, uh, it's very hard for somebody to take, I'm a Cleveland fan, away from you. Uh, and, and you look at something like when Art Modell did take the Browns away from the city, uh, the reaction, um, w- w- which was just kind of anguished but also angry – um, because he was really ripping a part of people out of the city, and then you, you look at also what the city did. Well, I mean, they sued and said, "You can take the players, you can take the coach, but you can't take the colors because those are ours." Uh, and you know, if you're going to be a Cleveland fan, you're going to be a fan of the the brown and orange, uh, and that's that's who we are, uh, which is really interesting. And I think this kind of it leads into the the second part of this, which is. Um, you know, there's these people who study relationships, and and, and there's a guy uh, who was at the Stony University of Stony Brook, uh, New York, and, and now is uh, State University of New York Stony Brook, and now is at uh, UC Berkeley. And uh, he had this question about loving couples, uh, where he, he wanted to look in their brains and see, you know, what what brain structures would be active when you look at a person who's who's been happily married for 20 years in, in the scanner, and, and they look at a picture of their their significant other. Uh, He was kind of curious because we know that sexual desire has its own brain structure. And he was curious, does love have its own brain structure? And so he looks in there and and what he finds instead is uh, that love uh, seems to be activating uh, this kind of general reward pathway that we have uh, that that you see basically a pretty similar activation in people who think they're going to win a lot of money, in people who – uh, are looking at sports cars <laughs> in, in uh, people who are taking cocaine. Um, it, we have kind of a, a very basic architecture in our brain for. Uh, it's really actually not basic; at all. it's very complicated. But but on on a, a broad level, it's it's pretty pretty basic. This reward pathway called the dopamine reward system, and and you get dopamine surprisingly not so much for. Um, you know, in in a sports context, not so much maybe for for winning and losing, although you get it for that too. But but one of the things you get it for is the the lasting it, it, endurance of the relationship, like a, like a loving couple. Uh, you know, it's the relationship, it's the the connection that matters as much as any individual moment in there. And so I think you look at people in Cleveland, and and it actually makes it uh, kind of almost a sweet uh, and a, a happy story that. The value they get is not necessarily in the winning and losing, although it would be a very big reward if they won. But but a lot of the reward in sports and a lot of the reasons we stick with this has to do because of the value of the relationship itself. And and so it's so important to you to to have this team to to be doing this that your brain actually gets a reward from that. Just from being a fan, uh, you are rewarded as if you know as you would be just by being married
0: but by and large and to follow up with cleveland a bit when when you were there and, and doing your research and talking to people how open were people to from cleveland to talk about their i don't know if misery is the right word but just their 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 loyalty i guess how open oh, were they to you
1: they love it <laughs> <laughs> I think I think actually that, that Cleveland sports fans are very proud of their, uh, and I talk about the, uh, about pride and, and the, uh, the evolutionary origins of pride based on the, a work that was of a psychologist at the University of New South Wales in Australia. But uh, people love it; they love uh, outsiders coming in and asking, you know, tell me about your history as a Cleveland sports fan. Uh, you, know, everybody I ask, I was walking up to random people on the street, and they just, I mean, it's hilarious. They're leaning over and pointing in my notebook and you know saying, write this down, write this down. Uh, we're the most miserable people. And you'd ask, like, I'd ask, well, you know, what about the Cubs? Oh, don't bring that weak stuff here. <laughs> <laughs> the Cubs, get out of here. Yeah. Well, what about Seattle? What about Sandy? Oh, come on. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing like us. And he was like, you'd ask him about Seattle, which is, is like not exactly a happy sports city, uh, especially lately. And they're like, oh, the Supersonics won the NBA title in the 1970s, nothing like us. <laughs> and it's like, wow, they have like, they're not only extremely aware of all the ways that the Cleveland teams have failed them over the years, they're super aware of all the other ways that like anybody who could compete with them being the most tortured sports city <laughs> is disqualified. Yeah, you know, Cubs fans, they secretly enjoy it. It's a social, social thing, not a, not like they care about losing Seattle. They won the NBA title. San Diego's got nice weather. Like, eh.
0: (laughs) What what do you think would happen to, to the identity of a Cleveland sports fan if they won, if the Cavs or if the Browns won, you know, a a title, what would
1: happen? Yeah, I I think this is such a terrific question. Uh, And I, I, in the book, I kind of uh, talked about. Well, I think there's a psychological process where, uh, you know, the the pride thing that I talked about is um, the, the way the researcher looks at this is kind of this. It's not necessarily like a boastful thing. She doesn't look at it quite as a negative as I think we kind of use it in a vernacular sense. She's looking at more pride as, uh, you know, knowing that you did a good job and knowing that other people know you did a good job, and and then they have self esteem, which is is just kind of this uh, you know, I know I did a good job and, and I feel great about it. Uh, and I think part of what happens when they win is, uh, they just have this tremendous amount of pride and it's all converted into self-esteem. Like you really feel good about yourself. And part of the euphoria is, you know, recognizing that everybody else in the world now sees that you have done something well. Um, the other thing <laughs> that, that I think happens is there's a bit of an identity crisis. And like I looked at um, there's a famous uh, English example of this in the Manchester City uh, soccer team, which was like the lovable losers of the English Premier League for for 45 or 50 years or something. Uh, and they had, the, you know, the fan base had this terrific uh, response, you know, where they'd really developed their own culture of losing and, and enjoyed the losing part of this. And then all of a sudden, uh, in, I think in 2008 they get bought out by uh, you know kind of a wealthy Middle Eastern conglomerate, and uh, they spend a ton of money and they turn them into a really really good team. And a few years later, they win the English Premier League. And all of a sudden, it's like, whoa, well, who are we now? <laughs> what, what do we do next? And it's like Boston. It's the same thing in Boston. I think you know you saw. Boston fan, you know, of course they tremendously enjoyed it. I mean, it was just a, you know, moving and incredibly emotional and meaningful thing for the Red Sox to win the World Series. And then for a year or two following that, there was this weird, like, what are we now? And, you know, there's, there's like fan infighting. You see like Bill Simmons arguing with people and, you know, the pink hats, uh, the pink Boston hats and everybody arguing with, you know, should Jimmy Fallon have been on the field and does that cheap in their, their World Series win and all this stuff where, you know, there's this real like argument all of a sudden about who's a real Boston fan, and I think you would see the same thing in Cleveland. I think you would see, uh, <laughs> you know, a, an incredible citywide euphoria uh, um, for months after after the win. No matter what, you know whether it's in baseball or basketball or football, I, I think you would just see the city go go crazy, and then they would settle in this like the recrimination period like well who are we now and and then they would have this argument uh and they would have to sort out who they are now and you know like i think boston has kind of adopted now like they they're now they're a front runner town like now they're now they're not the lovable losers anymore now they're the the guys who everybody expects to win they're the bullies um so so you know it would be it would be hilarious to watch that happen in cleveland um and they'd have to sort it out for themselves.
0: <laughs> I, I remember seeing that in Chicago in '05 when the White Sox won yeah, the World yeah, Series. Definitely. And it was, like, it was like this south side, north side. The one thing that unified them is they were both losers. And then, <laughs> and then the White Sox went and won. And the, and the urban legend was that Jerry Reinsdorf had once said that he would trade all six Bulls titles for one World Series win. And then he you know, they finally won <laughs> it. And you could see this, this power dynamic shift in yeah. Chicago when they won, where all of a sudden the Cubs fans got a little quieter. You know, and the Sox fans, you know, stuck out their chest. And even now, as they're, you know, suffering through a miserable season, and the Cub fans say, Ha, you're even worse than we are, they still go (laughs) back to, Yeah, but we won the World Series.
1: Well, I mean, it's been pretty interesting Mm -hmm. to be here in San Francisco. I'm not a a Giants fan necessarily, but uh, the city really went nuts. They've won two of the last three World Series, and people here have just gone crazy. And they hadn't won one in their entire time in San Francisco before that. And so uh, it was interesting. I hadn't been really in a citywide euphoria like that, but I, I kind of live on the outside of the, the mission district of the city, which is not necessarily what you think of as the, the big sports uh, part of, of San Francisco. And none, uh, you know, nonetheless, it just went crazy. A million people showed up for the parade and there was this just like triumphant, uh, you know, weird feeling. And then like, I grew up as an ace fan in the East Bay. And so there was a kind of a, you know, and the clearly the A's who were the dominant team through the eighties the and, uh, you know, kind of early '90s. Suddenly, you know, the A's were. <laughs> uh, it became painfully apparent drawing ten thousand or eight thousand people for a, a game, and the Giants were just the it thing. It was very interesting.
0: There was a later on in the book. It's fascinating that you you write about a, a researcher and a professor named Daniel Wan. Yeah, and you know, he's so much of his work has been influential on on sports fans. But you did something interesting in which you turned him into a, a character almost almost the subject yeah, yeah. instead of the researcher uh, yeah. to take some time to describe you know, sort of who he is and what it is that you were learning from being around him or talking with him
1: yeah um so he's great and uh, the reason i turned him into a character is because i started calling people you know looking into this stuff and then realized there aren't a lot of people who actually are looking at sports fans uh and i found that pretty interesting you know from The testosterone guys who are looking at elections, and the mirror neuron people are—they're looking a little bit at sports fans, but you know, it's not their priority. They're looking; they think that this is the answer to uh, autism, and you know, they they think that this explains serial killers have a deficit of mirror neuron function and empathy, and uh, you know, it has all these implications for the development of language. Like, why are they going to waste their time looking at sports fans? And so, I kind of was going in circles for a while, trying to find well, who actually studies the sports fans uh, and it led me to um this utterly fantastic guy at murray state university in kentucky uh, named daniel wan um, and and i trip he, he does a little conference every year with a a friend of his who's also a, a sports fan researcher at western kentucky um, and they have a little kind of symposium every year uh, where they go over kind of what they're working on and um, so i went out there and visited them and they were just they were terrific guys and um, I, I, I turned them into characters in part because I enjoyed so much the, the way they go about looking into sports. And and so Dan and I had these conversations and I mean, he arrived in it the same way that I did. Uh, he was, he's a big Royals fan, <laughs> uh, but, but he's also just, uh, you know, he, he has all the same, uh, why am I doing this questions? And, and he said about over the last 20 years to kind of do his best to uh, address all these questions, um, you know. And he he doesn't have a big a big research lab, so a lot of it he's had to do pretty cleverly, just kind of as he can. Um, but but he's really got there, and he's asked all the questions uh in in his own way and and so it was really fun to talk to him and we went out to lunch and just kind of had this long talk um you know i also he's just a very funny funny guy (laughs) so he'd have these terrific (laughs) uh you know i'd i'd ask him these questions well you know people talk about this as an escape uh you know i i never feel like it's an escape for me because my Teams all make me miserable, and I generally like the rest of my life. And he just, like, jumps in right away. He's like, it's because your teams suck. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he, he's, he's a great guy. And I think the other neat thing that he did that, that really helped me was uh, he kind of has done a lot of surveys and, and uh, you know, just kind of polls of people uh, and has really narrowed down the uh, why people do this to kind of eight, like, reliable – Here's why people say they are sports fans, um, which kind of illustrates the complexity of this. I mean, there's eight that he's got sort of fundamental, like, different ways we could all be watching this. Um, But also as helpful as, uh, you know, just, okay, here are the kind of ways into this for people. And he's done work, you know, how do people get introduced to sports? Uh, You know, why do they say they go to sports? Uh, And he's kind of looked at, uh, you know, how do people – uh, you know behave how what do they say about uh, why they go to games live and he, he it, it gets almost uh, uh, crazy at times when he's doing studies you know they'll ask him to come up with a formula for for predicting uh, you know fan success or you know fan engagement or something he says, well okay <laughs> if you add this and this and this and this together I guess you kind of get a little measure of fan engagement so uh, he's a, he's a fun guy to talk to and he has you know just interesting work and, uh, he has this backstory where he he wanted to do work in social science. He got a PhD in, in psychology, and you know, as he was going around, uh, you know, trying to figure out what he was going to do his his work, and uh, he, he tells the story that everybody else seemed so miserable. He's like, "Man, I better pick something I'm interested in." And he was interested, as I am, in uh, in sports fans and and why they behave the way they do. So.
0: Uh, why do you think? And I'm going to ask you to speculate a bit. Why do you think more work, more research hasn't been done on sports fans? <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> I think there's there's two reasons. Um, one is that uh, I, I think legitimately it's hard to get money for it. Um, you know, right. if you're running, uh, you know, that just still like brain scanning technology is is New enough that it's expensive still, um, and if you're applying to limited funders um, and you know limited time in the machines, and you need a lot of money to run a, a brain scan study, uh, it's hard to uh, if you're competing against all the <laughs> really valuable things that are happening out there. And Dan and I talked about this too. It it's hard to say well my my study of why some Cubs fans cry and some don't uh, needs priority over. Why do some people get cancer? Um, I mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you kind of understand there, but good point. <laughs> but but at the same time, I mean, I actually think there's a lot of valuable stuff. I mean, I was saying earlier, I think the cool thing about sports fans is this is actually a way to look at a lot of very basic human processes and the way we behave, not just in sports, because our our behaviors in sports are not. You know it's not like we have a sports watching part of our brain. Uh, we just have a, a regular old human brain and we're recruiting all these other things that we do in other places and using them in sports. And so I mean my opinion is that sports is actually a really valuable way to study uh, you know human behavior uh, and human behavior in a lot of ways you know, it's easier to study sports fans. Uh, you know if you want to study tribalism and how people behave in groups, you know you could spend a lot of money, uh, you know, doing a a year long ethnographic study of uh, of a tribe somewhere in Papua New Guinea, where you could just go look at Cubs and White Sox fans. Um, well, you got, know, I think,
0: we've got. I'm sorry to cut you off, but you've got this yeah. you know, about groups. You've got this great little passage in there yeah. about about the post 2003 Super Bowl Raiders. <laughs> you know, in which now sort of they peaked and had yeah. this epically low valley yeah. in, in the team's history. It kind of explained yeah. what that was like.
1: <laughs> well, uh, Raiders fans. So Raiders fans are getting back to this little. I mean, they're a puzzling group, but but I actually find them uh, much nicer and more pleasant than their reputation. And I think a lot of this has to do with with the way we act as groups. And, and getting back to this idea that that uh, uh, you know the the brain reflects uh, the way we act as sports fans reflects a lot of the the ways we act as people. And, and Raiders fans are, are very or at least they're the really hardcore ones. The Raider Nation are, are very uh, tight with each other. This is a family to them. And, and one of the things that this kind of does and the way our brains are set up to process groups is this makes you uh, favor people in your own group. And, and so they really, you know, in a lot of ways, the, the Raider Nation is an interesting model because it is kind of all uh, classes and races and genders. It really uh, embraces them all as long as you're wearing silver and black, like you are a member of this family, but then they're so proud of the family and they're so into the family that a lot of times they misbehave to non-family members. <laughs> <laughs> so I have, I have a couple of stories about the Raiders uh, then the Raider nation in, in my book. And, you know, the one uh, I, I kind of like the most is um, a, a lot of the different characters in the Raider nation and their kind of ups and downs over the last few years and how they got to be where they are and, uh, and, and this guy Gorilla Rilla, who they describe as the beating heart of the Red Nation, a guy who's dressed up for the last 18 years as a gorilla for for all Raiders games, and, uh, <laughs> and is like the sweetest, nicest, kindest guy I've ever met. I mean, he's so so nice. Um, but he really is just all about his Raider family. You know, he's all about kind of loving his his friends and his family and his team. Um, but then. You go into the stands with these guys, and the group is so tight knit that part of what it does is it responds to outsiders. Uh, <laughs> it, it just uh, you know th- there's some psychol like psychologists have different ideas about where in our past kind of our our propensity for, for group conflict comes from. But but one of the arguments is it's just uh, you know we're really good at identifying people in our own group and really good at applying all these biases. Um, just unconsciously, we we think better of ourselves and of the people we're close to than than we do of outsiders. And the Raiders fans are like this living example of this. They just they're very bad at assessing the motivations of others and and and, and, and assuming hostile intent uh, uh, when none is intended. <laughs> so so they react. Very defensively and very aggressively to anything they perceive as criticism. And uh, they are quite sensitive.
0: <laughs> and it's almost like they took on, it reminds me of, of you know, Peter Richman wrote the book Badasses. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it's almost like, they, like they took on the persona of this 1970s, you know, Raiders teams, but they never really quite let it go.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's a very, uh, very strong and, and I think correct argument that. And that you know those teams were something similar that they took on people who, who felt like they didn't fit in elsewhere um, and, and responded aggressively to what they viewed as societal criticism um, and how strong that societal criticism was, uh, I'm not sure, but they certainly perceived it you know and this motivates all athletes you know Aaron Rodgers who went to Cal and you know became the, the Green Bay Packers. Quarterback is motivated by you know what he perceives as this giant slight of the universe that nobody drafted him to go to a major college until Cal's coach picked him out of junior college and uh, that he dropped all the way to you know twenty fourth in the first round or whatever. Like, well, you know that still means <laughs> you were in the first round. Like, it still means everybody thought you were pretty damn good. Um, but you know, and people take slights against them and, and blow them up. But I think the Raiders do this, and, and you know, they had these players who, who felt miscast elsewhere and so it would come here and the fans adopted this like we don't fit in with the rest of society so, so we got to be Raider Nation um, and I think it's still true a little bit like I think most of these people would, would fit in just fine but but perceive the world as hostile to them um, in part because it gives value and meaning to their group um, it makes you makes you feel like a more proud member of the group when you view everyone else as against you it keeps you cohesive <laughs> yeah,
0: it, it's, you're talking about how sports is sort of a safe place to study the broader questions of the human condition. and yeah. You can see that, you know, the themes that you touch on, you know, empathy and addiction and love and behavior in groups. And one of the last ones you mentioned is war. Yeah. And one of my backgrounds is, is in, I'm not doing it anymore, but it was, it was in sports writing. And uh-huh. it was drilled into you over and over. You know, the, the deep past is no longer called the bomb. And don't call them warriors. Yeah. Don't call them soldiers. But you made this <laughs> conscious choice to to invoke the word War.
1: Yeah. Oh, uh, (laughs) terrific question because uh, of exactly what you said, because I'd read so much that talked about this as a war because so many people, I mean, I had this, this great thing where I was sitting in San Francisco one night and we're sitting in a bar somewhere and uh, it's one of these kind of fashionable bars where the tables are a little too close together. And I'm talking to a friend of mine (laughs) and we're talking about, you know, why, why do people watch sports? And this guy like butts in, just leans over from the other table and says, dude, it's a war metaphor, bro and then he just like leans back and it's like the like voice from from uh, above that says okay well w- why is this a war metaphor you know it's competitive so so how much does this look like war and people you know dismissively say oh this is just tribalism you know this is little men pretending that they're uh, having a ba- battle so they don't need to have a real battle and so i tried to look at uh, a lot of the ways uh, you know we we do behave in war and and, and compare it and see you know <laughs> people talk about tribalism well how do how do tribes actually behave does it look like sports fans um and, and kind of look at how much sports really is a, a war by proxy um my my argument in there is actually not as much as it has always been given credit for and that uh you need to separate out uh, the way humans fight with each other you need separate conflict from competition um and and that you know unless you really look at war as something uh, yeah. you know between nations as something involving a lot of complexity and different action. You know, it doesn't just involve conflict. It involves love and sacrifice and altruism and all this stuff. Well, okay, then maybe sports is more of a war metaphor because war is just the human condition. But um, you know, in terms of just specifically, is this conflict, is this simulated conflict? I'm not so sure. Uh, I think it's much more accurate to say that this is competition uh, and that humans are very wired to like competition. But I'm not sure that we're wired for conflict.
0: So... Going back to the beginning, this, mm-hmm. I'm sorry to bring up Cal, Oregon State.
1: It's all right. I've replayed it in my head a billion times.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that the, being the inspiration for the book and you wondering, you know, why did you feel the way that you felt after that game? You know, and even years later, what did you learn about the subject? What did you learn about yourself through the process of this book?
1: Yeah. Well, I think, I think the really, the great thing I learned from this uh, is that it's not as silly, um, as it often feels and you know i think the the moment there that was so distressing was not necessarily the moment where they lost the game i mean that was very painful but the moment that that was the worst was the train ride home where i sat there and was like i don't understand why i do this and where i felt like i'm an idiot um this is dumb this is irrational and i think uh, having spent a bunch of time kind of talking to these psychologists, it makes a lot more sense to me now why we do this and why we put up with the pain. And so, you know, I don't think it lessens my irritation or frustration or pain at all at the team performing poorly, but I think that I don't have to sit on the train anymore and, and feel ashamed <laughs> <laughs> and and wonder why and that that's kind of my, my takeaway is that actually uh, sports is not, uh, uh, you know, it, it is a silly little game in some ways, but uh, it, it's silly in the way that, you know, most personal and important and meaningful family things are silly. Uh, you know, my kids' school play doesn't really mean anything to the world at large, but it's important to me. And I think that's kind of how I've come to understand uh, relationships with our sports teams is is something that is important to us and, and for good reasons, for, you know, pretty sound psychological reasons this this is meaningful to us Um, this is not something to be embarrassed about uh, and it's not silly and so uh you know i i have saved myself that the agonized train ride home where i thrash around wondering why i'm such an idiot and now i just thrash around wondering why my team sucks so bad
0: (laughs) (laughs) so so the the work is done the book is out it's on bookshelves what's next for you
1: well actually i've I've got a cool uh, a bit of a cool opportunity right now to do a bit more research, uh, which we're kind of talking about, but I've talked to some of the researchers in the book and and I'm kind of coordinating a bit with them um, to do some more studies uh, to kind of see. Uh, if we can actually study sports fans in some of these areas and, and maybe learn a little bit more, um, you know, it, looking at, uh, you know, I talk about love and what happens when you look at it, uh, a person you've been married to for a long time. But, you know, maybe we'll get a chance now to look and see really what happens in your brain when you look at the sports team you've been married to for a long time. Um, so I'm doing a little bit of that um, and and I'm kind of just back to. Uh, you know, writing for magazines, I may just <laughs> return to my quiet, happy little world of nature writing where there are no uh, <laughs> where I can once again separate my professional life from uh, the agony of all my sports teams <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Well, the book is The Secret Lives of Sports Fans The Science of Sports Obsession and the author is Eric Simons Eric, I've had a lot of fun, thanks for joining us
1: Yeah, me too, that's terrific uh, Thank you so much for having me
0: This has been New Books in Journalism, part of the New Books Network. You can find The Secret Lives of Sports Fans by Eric Simons at Amazon and other retailers. Thank you for listening.